0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back everyone to New Books Network. I'm Yadamson Longcomer, the host of this channel, and today I'm here with Dr. James Pillow to talk about his book, Materializing the Bible, Scripture, Sensation, and Place. Before I go into uh, the book and talk with the author, Let me just say something about the author and the book, because I think Dr. Chams has uh, been someone whom I have been following uh, from the time when I was a master's, because anthropology of religion was something uh, which is of interest to me, even during my master's and when I became a PhD student, I began digging deeper, and today I'm privileged and honored to be uh, talking with uh, Dr. James Pillow and the, and the author himself, and, and about his work. So it's a it's a great privilege for me. Also about the book, I think this book is an interesting book in a sense that uh, you know it talks about obviously it talks about the materializing the Bible, but uh, also it goes into how the Bible is a sensed, experienced and also recontextualize. So I think that is something which today we are going to delve deep into uh, with the author and himself, with uh, Dr. James Pelo. And I believe that uh, the listeners will be enriched by this uh, short conversation. So let me just go straight and talk with uh, the author himself. So, uh, Dr. James, tell us something about uh, yourself. Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, well, first, Tia, thanks so much uh, for reaching out and for wanting to do this uh, and for the really kind introduction. It, it, it's really, uh, really gratifying to hear. Um, so I'm a, a cultural and linguistic anthropologist by training um, and have have spent uh, my career up to this point really working uh, in the anthropology of religion. Um, that's included a few different projects. I won't go into, into all of them, but kind of all of them have... have Focused around the ethnography of uh, different kinds of Christians uh, uh, in the in the United States, primarily, uh, and I've had the opportunity to work in some some diverse uh, Christian communities. Everything from you know, quite quite progressive uh, neo monastics uh, working for for change within within uh, their denominations and their traditions to um, quite conservative uh, fundamentalists uh, who. Built a creationist theme park in in the state of Kentucky. So um, my works uh, uh, covered a, a fair amount of ground in that sense. Um, and it's all been all been totally fascinating. That's why I keep doing it.
1: Yeah, thank you for the short and precise uh, introduction. Uh, I know that uh, this book has been um, a long project uh, of yours, and I of also uh, there is also a website called Materializing the Bible, and uh, you know th- this this is something quite interesting. So, but then. Uh, Tell us something about the background of this book as to, you know, uh, how did the idea of materializing the Bible came about and how did this uh, whole book came about as a project? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much. It's an important question. Um, I'll try not to make a short story long here, uh, but there is, is, there's, there's a lot, I guess I could say about it. Um, The, the, birth of the project was really in the previous, um, ethnography that I was working on, which was this ethnography of a creationist theme park in Kentucky. Um, and in the midst of doing that project, um, I, one way I thought about what they were doing, um, was in this sort of broader frame of, um, transforming the written words of scripture into an experiential choreographed environment. Um, and I, I got to think about how that's not Unique to them, and I guess that's the thread that I wanted to pull. That you know that, that that's not something that only this particular Christian group in this particular you know social historical moment were doing. This is something that different Christians mm-hmm. in different contexts across a really uh, long range of time and 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 quite diverse uh, set of cultural contexts have done and continue to do, um, and so that. Um, that was the thread that I, I started pulling at. And the more I pulled at it, just the, the longer the thread seemed to be, um, and the more, the more and more fascinating it seemed to be. And so, um, it really began as wanting to create this digital scholarship project. Thank you for mentioning it, uh, called Materialize in the Bible, which is still live and people can go to and hopefully explore and learn from. We uh, still can, we continue to get um, folks wanting to contribute, which is lovely. Um, the, the most recent thing we did was we uh, was from a, um, a Ph.D. student in theater uh, at Northwestern University, who um, her her dissertation includes um, work at the Great Passion Play uh, in uh, uh, Arkansas mm-hmm. and um, a place called Sight and Sound Theaters, which has a location in Missouri, but also a location in, in Pennsylvania. Um and both of, both of which are, are, are pretty uh, well-established biblical theater companies. And so she ended up contributing a, a, a multimedia essay about, about her work. Um, that was the most recent thing we added. Um, so it really began as, as wanting to just sort of put in one place all of these sites that we knew of. When um, I say we, I was, I was working with an undergraduate student, uh, Amanda White, who is so instrumental in getting things off the ground. I'm, I'm so grateful for Amanda's work. Um, and so we just really started building a database. It was meant to be an open access database um, that had really two features. It was pretty, pretty straightforward at first. There was a map feature where people could see where these sites existed on the map, um, on a global map. Um, and then a kind of a, just a catalog where people could um, go, go to, say, like a website uh, or a social media page for a particular attraction. Um, whether that be a museum or a theme park or a garden or a replica of some kind. Um, and I think when we first launched it, it had a couple of hundred sites, um, and it's grown. It now has, I think over 500 sites. Um, and we've also added a bit of historical depth to it, um, where we are, are um, tracking not just the sites that exist now, but the sites that have existed and the sites that were planned but never actualized. Uh, and so there's a, there's a I think, a, you know, the, the websites gained this really dynamic sense, uh, which I, which I'm, a fan of, <laughs> uh, over time. And, and, I, and I've had a number of other students end up working on it as well, which is wonderful. Um, I'll shout out uh, a young woman named Claire Vaughn in particular, who did just tremendous work in doing some archival, uh, research and some field, field work. Um, so it began as this website, which grew and kind of took on a life of its own. And then I started doing some, some written scholarship to sort of follow up on it. And er- anything I was writing was meant to be, Kind of working in tandem with the website, which was obviously more interactive and something that you could update at any point and that sort of thing. Uh, and then I got a really, really generous invitation from um, uh, Amy Whitehead, as uh, one of the editors with the Bloomsbury Studies and Material Religion series, asking me if I had any ideas for books. And you kind of want a whim almost. Uh, I pitched what is really an unconventional book in, in a lot of ways, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in terms of the structure of it. Um, I pitched a book that, that wasn't really a linear analysis or kind of a linear story about materializing the Bible. I pitched a project that would kind of dive into this phenomenon and look at it at a bunch of different angles and profile a variety of different places, but not dwell too long on any one. And, you know, because she's a really creative and, and generous and, and wonderful person said that sound, that sounds intriguing. Let's, let's, let's give it a shot. Uh, and so, so we did. And, and that's kind of how the book arose. Um, I could, I can probably stop there uh, in, instead of rambling on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that was uh, quite really interesting as to how the the project of uh, the materializing the Bible and the book itself came about and, and, um, you know, on your uh, project work and the people that help you. So that's a quite interesting thing. So, you know, before going into the contents of the book, I think... um, in the study of religion, the uh, materiality has something which has been studied, debated, discussed a lot. Uh, a lot. And, uh, you know, for the listeners, I mean, people who might not have uh, come from the background of religious studies and anthropology of religion and all. I mean, uh, people might be wondering what materializing the Bible really means as to the, the as perspective and the aspect of it and how... Um, it is done and how it is conceptualized. So, uh, can you expand something on uh, what materializing the Bible really means? Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. And and I can I'll answer it kind of narrowly and broadly if that's okay. So, narrowly, um, when I use the phrase materializing the Bible, what I'm referring to is kind of cultural performances where um, people take some part of the scriptural tradition. So, a story a text a book a character um and they turn it into a an environment an, an environment a place that you can go um and experience um and some of you know this this could be in the form of a single sculpture that you know is put into a place and 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 is designed in a way that people are um, uh, kind of encountering it and and it's designed in a way that that people are um, I, sh- I say supposed to, uh, which is tricky, but there's a there's a kind of an affordance to interact with it in a in a certain way, be it devotionally or pedagogically or as entertainment. Um, or it could be an entire, you know, uh, you know multi-acre park that has numerous exhibits or numerous installations um, and it's telling a variety of stories. Um, so, you know, it's not about how big it is. Um, um, it's just, you know, does it, you know, is there a place that's created that's meant to retell a biblical story in some way, or as you said earlier, recontextualize um, a, a scriptural narrative. So that's kind of the narrow answer. I mean, I do think that, that, You know, you can think about other, there are closely related forms, um, that, that we could talk about that easily kind of blows it up, blows up the category to, to being, to being just immense. And so this would be things like stained glass art or, um, you know, um, a series of sculptures that get made, um, that, you know, travel around or that people could, can visit, um, You know, to, and I I do talk right about some of these artifacts in the, in the book, but things like handheld stations of a cross, um, which are a really fascinating kind of, kind of cultural artifact. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of the narrow answer. And then, you know, more broadly, um, you know, I, I hope it's a, I hope it's a contribution to this, I think, really dynamic field of material religion for anybody who's not familiar with it. I think the very first place that I recommend them going is the journal material religion, um, published by Taylor and Francis. Um, it's been around for, um, Oh, I think, I think 20 years or so at this point, um, and just continues to publish, I think, I think the best scholarship in in the field. Um, this series with Bloomsbury is a is a nice uh, second stop to go. Um, there's a number of really great uh, monographs and edited volumes in the series, which look at different religious traditions um, and look at different forms of religious materiality. Um, but I think the the basic conceit of, of material religion is that um, um, you know, religion is not. Cannot and should not be reduced to um, anything abstract or anything that doesn't have a real presence. Um, that religion is practiced and lived and taught and and fought over and changed through. All kinds of material dimensions—be those places, or objects, or texts, or the human experience and the bo- the the, um, the bodily experience that happens when people are doing religious things by themselves and 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 together with other people, privately or in public—and um, so that's I think the kind of the the founding conceit of the field, and then it and then it kind of grows from there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Going into the contents of the book, um, you have divided the book into three sections. The first section is the variation on replication. The second, the power of nature. And third, choreographing experience. So you also mentioned that the ch- chapters in the book and the book itself is, is uh, doesn't go with a certain flow, right? It doesn't give kind of like a bigger narrative, but it, it is meant to be uh, read in, in and these sections and understand the materiality of uh, how the Bible is performed in that sense. So let's go to the first one, that is variation on replication. I think the idea of uh, replication itself and the examples that you have brought in the Bible is was quite uh, interesting and interesting to me personally also, because in my work actually, um, I'm working in India, in the northeast India, in one of the states called Nagaland. And Nagaland is the place where at least um, more than 90% of the people here are Christians, belonging to the Baptist denomination, actually. And then uh, there's, a, there's a place called Impur where the first missionary, the American missionaries, came to Nagaland, and they uh, started the institution, right? Um, uh, yeah, their the religions is the institutions there um, uh, in the Impur. So they have uh, this, in, in that place, they call that place as the Jerusalem of Nagaland. It's uh, quite interesting, right? So Jerusalem of Nagaland. And then the, uh, the the structure of the place is also uh, structured in such a way. And then you have the cross and then you have the tomb and all of those uh, structures made actually in that place. And uh, when I visited that place, that place was also quite really interesting and intriguing to me in that sense. So when I read this chapter, that, all the experiences that I had during my fieldwork <laughs> actually came about and then um, m- made it more, of, more interesting to me in that sense. So... Uh, tell us, let's explore more about this replication. Uh, how does this uh, process of replication work? And you know, what effect does it ha- have on the uh, religious communities here? We are talking about the Christians, right? So, yeah, um, let's explore more on that. And th- please explain more on this aspect. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great question. I wanna, if, I, if it's okay, I, I, I'll work up to it, but I want to take a step back um, and, and kind of approach it a little more broadly. And I'll just say too, in response to what you're saying, so I, I'm, I'm so happy to hear about your work and I'm, I'm looking forward to following it. Um, and to, to learn about this new place, right. Which I didn't know existed. And so that's, you know, while the, like the, the, the digital scholarship project has a really robust database by no means is it complete and, and by no means is it exhaustive. Um, you know, we were constantly learning about new sites and I continue to learn about new sites. And so now, now I'm going to add this, uh, to, to the, to the site. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I, I wanted to take a step back and just say a word about the composition of the book. Um, you know, you mentioned the three sections that kind of organize it. Um, and so I, to me, that's maybe a nice opportunity just to talk about the composition of the book. And then I'll, I'll, from there, I'll kind of go into your, your direct question about replication, if that's Okay. Great. Um, so yeah, I said earlier, right i i i wanted to I wanted to write a book that was maybe a little weird, uh, or conceived a little oddly, um, or that would take people off a bit off guard or surprise them, just in the way that it appears. Um, and and then hopefully the actual analysis also will, will have some surprising turns for folks. Um, and the way I settled on doing that was to sort of you know. Take this phenomenon, materialized in the Bible, which is quite diverse and does cover a broad historical range and a broad cultural range, a a broad theological range as well. And I thought, okay, well, what if you could have thought about it as like looking at it from one angle and then turning it just a little bit? And looking at it from another angle and then turning it again and looking at it from another angle. And then maybe like rotating it a little bit and, and looking at it from another angle. Um, and what if each, each of those angles provided a kind of short chapter, you know, a kind of a theme for a short chapter that I could then say something, say something hopefully useful analytically about and draw in a couple of interesting examples. Uh, and that was, that was kind of how I, how I continued. And one inspiration for this, I have to say, um, is a really great ethnography called thin description by an anthropologist named John Jackson. Um, and he's writing about this uh, really fascinating community called the African Hebrew Israelites of Jerusalem. And the book, I think I, I forget off the top of my head, but I think it's something like 50 different, he calls them ethnographic slices. Um, so it's like a little sliver of his fieldwork that he takes and you know kind of dives into and and dr- draws some meaning out of and uses as a as a jumping off point to say something about this community and who they are and what his experience was with them. And that was a real inspiration for me to to kind of think about doing a composing a book and structuring a book in a different way. Um, and so, um, the way that kind of, ended up for me was having these then three sections, variations on replication, where I look at different, again, di- kind of different angles of this phenomenon in terms of the forms of replication that are happening. Uh, and then the power of nature, looking at different kinds of natural encounters uh, that are drawn into this phenomenon that are part of this phenomenon. And then the largest section, uh, which has kind of three subsections. Um, and I'm guessing we'll, we'll get to those and talk about them. Uh, choreographing experience. Um So that was, that was kind of the, the idea. Uh, And, and, and we'll see if it was, if if it works, you know, like it's, it's an experiment and it could fail, you know, and that's okay. Right. Uh, If people real, you know, realize kind of how it failed and, and, and how it could be done better then that's, that's, you know, that's a win as well. You know, Uh, maybe not the ideal win, like, (laughs) you know, uh, I don't, I don't want it to, to be a failure. Um, But in any case, I, I hope that the fact that it's an, a bit of an experiment, um, is inspiring to people. Um, so replication, you know, this first section, um, has six different chapters. Um, there's the idea of kind of verisimilitude or one-to-one replication, um, whether, and that's, you know, about size and dimension, but it's also about feel and experience, um, even smell and then miniaturization. So, um, taking taking you know an original and and replicating it but in some smaller form um, reenactment and so this is really the the, the chapter about theater, biblical theater um, and was one of the most fun to write I have to say um, because when I first conceptualized it I thought well I'll probably end up writing about the passion a passion play of some kind because they're so ubiquitous And that would have been fine. Uh, and there's some ar- good scholarship already on on different passion plays around the world, um, and there would have been plenty of stuff to interact with. And in the midst of doing it, I ran across this funny little um, play, and I call it little, but it was actually, you know, a wonderful, wonderful, um, you know, example that ran for 20 plus years and exhibited at a couple of world's fairs and had a running running summer season for decades. Um, uh, that was based around the Book of Job. And so I discovered that and actually the um, archive for the play, the primary archive for the play is housed at a small um, Baptist college in Kentucky that at the time was only like an hour or so from me. And so it was just a perfect situation where I could go and spend time in that archive and write about this unknown, really unknown um, uh, biblical theater performance about the book of Job um, Anyway, uh, then the fourth one is Imagineering and I return here to Arc Encounter and their use of kind of Disney, um, inspired forms of entertainment to present this, um, quite, um, you know, theologically and politically conservative form of Christianity, um, and young earth creationism. And then the fifth chapter, uh, Plastic Jesus, um, sort of looks at, takes up the question of materiality um, and begins with this figure of of the plastic Jesus, which was kind of immortalized in a 60s, 1960s folk song and is well known uh, in the form of dashboard devotional uh, emblems. And, uh, but then moving from, from that to other kinds of materiality, from stone to sand to uh, Holy Land materials. And then the sixth chapter in the section um, called Ways of Remaining, which to me... It, it's hard to pick favorites, but is maybe my favorite chapter in the book, just because I think it takes some unexpected twists and turns, and really it's about how materi- forms of, of biblical materialities remain in circulation. Um, you know, a park you know a park closes, a founder dies, people run out of money, people stop visiting. Um, you know, the Holy Land Experience in Orlando, Florida, it's a high profile attraction that just closed uh, within the last year, and so what happens to the stuff? Where does it go, uh, and 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 how, how does it travel to the places that it goes, and 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 kind sort of thinks through that that question. So that's a brief overview of the section. You know, why does replication matter? Because that's kind of the conceit of the whole thing: is that replication does matter. Um, I guess I'll close by saying that I, replication has the fascinating capacity to both have like allow for cultural continuity, right. To be a way in which a tradition replicates itself. Um, and that there's a kind of cultural, broader cultural reproduction going on through the material replication. And there's that kind of sense of continuity that's going on. Um, at the same time, it has the capacity to, um, to posit change, uh, of a certain kind. Um, you know, to be a kind of a, a, if you want to think about it this way, kind of a centripetal force um, moving, moving away from a centralized authoritative institution. Um, And it can be, you know, replications can be a way in which people experiment and create and play and, and, and do things with their tradition that either are difficult to do, or maybe even not allowed you know within the formal official authoritative structures and so i think the replication has this that there's that wonderful tension going on in any case of replication between continuity and change between um recreation and and creative
1: um recontextualization yeah that, that's very true and that's uh, very well put let's come to the second section that is the power of nature and before I give uh, time to you on this and ask about the very uh, construction of the power of nature and how it is conceived and practiced, uh, I, I would like to uh, give a small narration with my experience also. You know, w- one of the interesting things here, uh, people in Nagaland, the Christians in Nagaland, they also go to the so-called the Holy Land, right? So people go to the Holy Land. And then it's quite interesting as to people, you know, uh, people bring water from certain rivers or people bring miniature metals uh, in forms of Gijan or, or whatever not back to Nagaland from there, the Holy Land. And, you know, um, all these things are seen as something which is very sacred, right? The, the water that they bring uh, and then the metals that they bring, bring, you know, they uh, take it as a priced position and all, and then people who go to the Holy Land in that sense, uh, kind of like Egypt's uh, kind of defense status, status, they might not spell it like that, but then kinds of you know people perceive them differently since they have gone to the Holy Land and they have had that experience, and all of those aspects was, was quite uh, interesting, even in the in the Nagaland scenario, the place that I'm working uh, in. But also at the same time, when I was doing my undergraduate studies, um, I attended this training camp, uh, the Bible training camp, where they teach us how to study the Bible, right? And the basic uh, tenets of how you study the Bible is to ask the question, when, where, how, why, and all of those aspects. But then in one of the sessions, in the beginning of the session, in one of the beginning of the session where we were taught how to study the Bible was to do this one, you know, they asked us, when you read the passage and when you try to imagine the passage, uh, what do you see? What do you smell? What do you taste? On All of those aspects. And that was quite intriguing to me when I was in undergraduate studies. I went for a training and, you know, the, the, they're asking us, you know, what do you taste or what do you smell when you imagine uh, the place was uh, something quite interesting to me. And, it, you know, reading this book and then reading the narrations that you bring about, it had really uh, bring about all of those memories and experiences that I have uh, in my uh, my past also at the same time in my field experience. So uh, this is where uh, comes again to the power of nature. And, you know, uh, what what... What really uh, are we talking about it uh, when we uh, talk about the power of nature, and how does uh, nature, in the sense of uh, past belief and experience, and of certain contexts and certain people, have uh, bearing on people now at this very uh, in, now in this context, and you know, in different contexts and different places uh, in the temporal time? Yeah. So how, how does it play upon?
0: Yeah. No, it's, 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 a, it's a great uh, sort of introduction to the question. And I, I so appreciate that example. Um, and one thing I, I appreciate about it is that it has such historical depth to it, um, you know, that they by doing that, they are joining this really robust tradition of Christians across theological and cultural contexts, turning to turning to the senses and a kind of sensory imagining of the past and a sensory, uh, you know, a connection to the text through the sensory imagination, um, and to the natural landscape materials of the places of the Bible. Um, one of the archival materials I, I interacted with for the book was this series of, um, eight, I think it was 1880s, uh, Sunday school booklets. And it was sort of like a, um, almost like a, a, a newsletter that would go out to um, people um, teaching in the Sunday school movement. This was um, the kind of the, the shared curriculum of the late 19th century Sunday school movement. Um, and, and one of the little, one of the columns, one of the regular features of this newsletter was um, the seasons in Palestine. So like what, what's going on right now, you know, in terms of climate, in terms of, what's blooming, what's growing, uh, what's being harvested. Um, and that, you know, that, that was, that was there and they were doing it then. And, and, and here in, in your example, right. Um, much, much the same. So, um, it's, it's one thing that certainly fascinated me and, and kept me going in thinking about this, this section was, was all that continuity. Um, you know, I think the basic idea of it is, is that, um, not to, not to totally repeat what I just said, I guess, but you know, the basic idea is that nature functions as a kind of privileged media um, for people wanting to connect to scripture in, a, in, a, in an intimate way, in an experiential way. Um, and that, you know, various kinds of natural experiences, whether it's encountering water or botanicals or stones or soil of different kinds, um, that these are kind of elevated um, and, and treated in, um, yeah, you know, ele- elevated in a way that um, they're attributed a kind of unique power and unique importance um, and, and a unique capacity to connect people to the text. That it you know that it does that, and so I, I present this concept of sensory indexicality in this section, um, and it appears in a few other places in the book, but it really features heavily here. Um, and it's the idea that um, you know the idea, and I, and I do think there's there's you know it's it's so much ideology going on here, um, but the ideology that um, through nature we can tap into a kind of um, shared human experience with the people of the biblical past um, that we can have this kind of indexical connection to biblical places and the biblical past through smelling a bay leaf, you know, in, and you know, of the same variety, (laughs) excuse me, Um, that that biblical people would have interacted with Um, or tasting, uh, tasting a fig um, or, um, Swimming in the Sea of Galilee, you know, any of these kinds of, you know, or for that matter, not just swimming in the Sea of Galilee, but, but touching Galilee water, right? So collecting it and circulating it worldwide, which of course has been happening for, for millennia. Um, and so the, the section really just sort of dives into that kind of, um, that kind of dynamic where nature is being treated as a privileged media and attributed this special importance, um, and I'll say, and and I guess I I do cite a few of these examples, but I think there's a ton more that we could that we could look at. Um, that this is not just about holy land materials or or biblical places. You know, we could take something like Lord Water. You know, um, you know, water that, that comes from this this uh, miraculous spring in France. Um, Uh, and is put into rosaries and shipped around the world. Um, Or a a colleague of mine, um, Brett Hendrickson has this wonderful book about pilgrimage to um, the um, shrine of um, Chimayo in New Mexico, uh, which uh, centers around, this sacred dirt, uh, that's, you know, uh, supposedly has healing powers. Um, and so people collect the dirt and they send the dirt to other people, um, and they carry it back with them and keep it, uh, as a keepsake for themselves. They wear it in jewelry, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and so this is, this is, this is not just about one kind of natural material or natural material tied to one place. I, I think there, there's something really, um, fascinating about this. I'll just say two other things real quick uh, that now I'm thinking of um, um, both of which I think appear in the book. You know, one is that, that you know, one thing that attracted my attention to it was the way in which these, these materials kind of present as kind of mundane, you know um, a wildflower, you know, a bag of soil, a bag of sand a vial of water, you know, these things present as, as quite simple, modest but um, um, but yet are attributed this incredible importance, and then you get a site like the Museum of the Bible in Washington D.C., which is a billion-dollar endeavor, um, you know, just to get off the ground. Um, and one of the the primary exhibits, um, which is a seven thousand square foot kind um, sort of uh, immersive replication called the World of Jesus of Nazareth, um, you know, in a museum that advertises itself as the most technologically advanced museum in the world inside this exhibit, there's just one digital projection, (coughs) um, and the rest, the rest is fabrication, um, and replication, but it's also, it's all grounded in nature and an experience with nature. And so, um, uh, um, I I was just given the opportunity to, to talk about this, um, with the wonderful folks at the American religious sounds project. So shout out to them as well, um, for all the good work they do. Um, folks should check out that digital scholarship project if they haven't already. Um, but one of the main soundscapes in the exhibit is birds and birds singing, and it, and it's um, the soundtrack is based off of um, uh, recorded materials of species native to the Galilee that this design team has pieced together. Um, and so, you know, in in the midst of this incredibly expensive, incredibly technologically sort of fussy museum, nature and an encounter with nature. Um, in different mediated forms, still plays an integral role, um, and that this is not unique to to Christianity or or religion per se. Uh, in the um, conclusion, I talk about the example of. Um, uh, African-American memorial museums uh, and one in particular that has collected soil from um, sites of American lynchings um, and they display these um, collections of soil in jars with um, when when it's known um, the victim's name and it's a way for people to understand this history of racialized violence um, and it's incredibly powerful and there's something about the privileged the way in which nature gets treated as a privileged media that allows that to happen. And I think that's worth a lot of attention.
1: Yes. It powerfully portrays the relation of religion with nature in a sense. And uh, yeah, quite interesting. Uh, let's uh, move to the last section of the book that is uh, choreographing experience. And that is where you have divided your choreographing experiences into um, three sections. That is circulation, design, and classification. Now I think, you know it's it's quite interesting also that uh, even though Uh, we are miles apart from each other in a very different context, looking at Christian community, but then also at the same time, uh, we could talk about this uh, materiality, this aspect, and then even though we explain and we experience things in a very different way, we could relate also in a sense. And and that is where it comes on uh, into the aspect of how uh, not only are this uh, the the aspect of materializing the Bible is not only about trying to reimagine the past, but also at the same time you know, uh, bring forth certain Ideologies in terms of their theological perspectives, and this is where uh, the uh, aspects also quite becomes quite interesting. But also at also at the same time, the the reinterpretation of uh, the uh, context and the histories and all of those aspects comes into. And this is where the choreographing experience, in the sense of how you know all of this is classified, the design and circulated is something. becomes quite interesting so um, how, how does this uh, choreographing experiences happen and um, uh, can you elaborate more on the um, classification of uh, these uh, different sections in terms of choreographing experiences yeah
0: yeah yeah for sure thank you for that I, I won't run through each one um, just because there's quite a few of them but um, I'll say up front that um, I borrow this kind of three-part distinction um, of circulation design and classification from a religious studies scholar, David Morgan, um, who, um, is really a wonderful, wonderful, insightful scholar, uh, in, in material religion. Um, and, uh, in a few places, but in, in this one particular essay, he kind of uses these as a, as a kind of a, an analytical framework for doing any kind of material religion, uh, exploration. And I found it really useful for thinking through these materials. And so, um, Well, I'll just say up front that, um, I was drawn to the idea of choreographing experience for a couple of reasons. Um, that, that word choreography is one that, um, um, I started using in this project early on and it kind of caught on and I, and I decided I liked it. And I, and I guess I liked it because I liked the idea that in the same way that a dance can be, can be choreographed, people's relate interaction with a place can be choreographed in different ways, um, both kind of, kind of quite overtly and directly on site, say through a tour guide or through signage or through a guidebook, but also through their received traditions, you know, through the rituals and the, um, the, the ways of practicing the religion that they've been socialized into that they bring those on site, Um, and, and that becomes a, another mode of, of choreography, um, and so I just sort of like that idea that, that, that people were engaged in this, in something that was, that had a design to it. But on the flip side, that people weren't beholden to it always, you know, that choreography didn't mean an overdetermined sense that you always knew exactly what people were going to do um, or that people had to to in, engage with these places in a, in a certain way, Um because it, people do surprise us. Thankfully, um, and they do go against the grain, and they do act outside of the designed choreography. But there's always that interaction, uh, and and when when people do that, they're doing they are doing it against the grain, and it reveals something about about the grain. Um, and so I like that tension. You know, I like that tension of there being design and set up in a way. That people are kind of coached to do things, but also then people develop their own routines and habits and 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 practices. Um, circulation was really fun to think about, just in terms of um, the really the, the global movement of objects and images, um, sometimes uh, places themselves. Um, and I really had a lot of fun with this kind of juxtaposed chapters 12 and 13 um, that takes up the picture postcard as a technology of circulation, and then selfies posted to Instagram as a technology of circulation. And, and the extent to which that they are involved in the same kind of work, they're, they're not isomorphic with each other. You know, they're not, I don't think that they're doing things identically or something, um, but they are engaged in the same kind of work. And I think it's fascinating to juxtapose them side by side um design is is something that i've been thinking about i guess for a while even going back to the previous project on arc encounter because that the ethnography there was really focused on the design team you know the people who they they thought of themselves as imagineers as people who were creating an experience for people and so um i wanted to think a lot about how places were designed and the histories behind them and the choices that were made um And then there, there's another kind of pairing of chapters that I had a lot of fun with, of thinking about kind of old and new technologies, um, where chapter 16 looks at the cyclorama. um, And in particular, this one, um, it's not an individual painting. There was actually uh, uh, quite a few of them, um, but a style of painting of looking at Jerusalem on the day of the crucifixion and being in this immersive setting. Um, And then uh, chapter 17 looking at virtual reality headsets um, and how those were being deployed in contemporary museums um, to create a biblical an encounter with biblical places. Um, And so thinking about these two kinds of immersive engulfing technologies side by side, um, I hope that'll be interesting for folks. Um, And then uh, classification, um, has yeah, three three chapters that I'm just so fond of, um, and because of the people that in the stories I get to tell, and I and I really should have said this up front is that I think something that drew me to this project and that kept me going in this project, and that if I look at the work that was done, something that I'm really happy about is that I I encounter like like the Book of Job, you know, this traveling biblical theater performance. I encountered so many fascinating stories in the project. I just wanted to tell them. You know, I wanted to be a good steward of them, um, and it doesn't mean that I'm not doing analysis. It doesn't mean that there's not theorizing going on. It doesn't mean that I don't want to, you know, say something about, you know, material religion as a phenomenon, and and you know, the social life of scriptures as a phenomenon. But I want to do it through these fascinating stories, you know, and I want those stories to be front and center. And I and I think that that I think I accomplished that, um, if nowhere else in the book, in this. Thirds. You know, this, this final subsection of classification, um, and I really focus on telling the stories of three places: one in Kentucky, the Garden of Hope; um, one in um, that 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 was in Georgia; it's non extant and and there's very little evidence of it. Um, it was called the uh, Drive Through Garden, um, uh, and another a great example of someone using replicate. You know, to, to your earlier question of using replication to do something that he wasn't actually even allowed to do. Um, He took on the identity of being a reverend um, uh, in a way that he wasn't allowed to do within his local community church, but he was able to do it through his drive through Bible garden. Um, And then uh, the site that um, has gone through various stages is now open again, but for uh, a number of years, maybe a decade or more, probably close to 20 years was closed to the public, but was still there. Um, and people went and, you know, you know, got drunk and, and, you know, you know, trespassed and, and did whatever, um, uh, uh, in Waterbury, Connecticut called Holy land USA. Um, and it's called four crosses over Waterbury because there were four different crosses over time that have kind of sat on the hilltop that people, you know, in the city can see, um, And it really is a dominant kind of landscape view when you're in Waterbury. Um, um, So, you know, class, they're, they're grouped together under classification because I think there's, there's a, analytically, there's a lot to say about how we, what we call these places and how we frame them and how we think about them. Um, And so um, this comes through, I think most clearly in, in the, in chapter 24 crosses over Waterbury, where I, Really, you know, the long and short of it is I, you know, there, there's a way of, of talking about these places and there's all kinds of examples of this that refer to it as kitsch and that uses the category, the classification of kitsch to talk about the place and it presents it in that vein. Um, and then there's another category um, of outsider art or folk art, um, which is more respectful um, in a way. Um, but also limiting, um, and both of those forms of classification, um, and I don't want to overstate it, but do their own kind of violence to the place. That is, they. What I mean by that is they do they they misrepresent the place in different ways, right? In their in their respective ways. And one thing that both of them miss as forms of classification is that it's a local place that local people have invested in and love. Um, you know, it's not, you know, kitsch presents it as something to kind of ridicule and make a joke of. Um, and outside art treats it as something that's kind of rarefied and for a specialized audience, um, even though it's, you know, a vernacular form. Um, both of those, you know, I think really miss the fact that it's a, it's, it's a site that is you know, bound to local lives in manifold ways. Um, and I think it's, that's really important to draw out. And so whenever we classify a site in a certain way, and maybe it's by calling it a theme park, or maybe it's by calling it a garden, or maybe it's by calling it a museum. Like when we classify in any way, what are we doing? What is the work that's going on? what are we highlighting and what are we obscuring and even what are we erasing?
1: Yeah. Thank you for the real elaborate explanation uh, on that uh, section. And as we come to the end of the discussion on the book, I'm thinking about this one where uh, I'm thinking about this uh, People like me who are starting off uh, in the uh, in area of research and doing research on this uh, area, also also at the same time, people who want to again uh, who have uh, finished uh, some experience in the research and wants to move ahead in the in the in the research in this area of uh, you know material religion and also specifically also materializing the Bible. So, you know, what will be some of your advices in terms of uh, to the people who are starting off uh, researching in this area? What are some of the pitfalls that we need to avoid? Also, what are some of the perspectives that we need to be very keen of that most of the time we might miss and also, at the same time, do the other section of the people. You know, uh, what are the areas for the, for future research in that sense of how do we go about? Uh, you know, looking at uh, different perspective aspect for the future research. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's a that's a great question. I, I feel like I feel a weighty responsibility in, in answering that question. Um, so, I, I'll try to say something that's helpful. <laughs> um, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Um, I, a couple of things come to mind. I mean, I think, I think methodologically, um, I think it's important to be, to be, to be creative, to not feel constrained by having to do things a, a certain way. Um, and by, you know, drawing multiple methods together and kind of doing it and really doing a multimodal analysis analysis. Um, you know, one thing that I, I, I set out to do in the book, and that I think I, I did at least in part was bring together ethnographic analysis, um, archival analysis, and sort of like a textual discourse analysis. Um, and you know, for me that was that for me that was that was new because I was used to really primarily doing ethnography. Um, almost exclusively doing doing ethnography. Uh, and so it was a really, really a fun challenge um, to try to draw together these different methods. And I think I think I, I think it's incredibly rewarding. Um, and it's hard to think about working in any other way at this point. Um, even though first and foremost, you know'm I think I'm always an ethnographer at heart. Um, um, and that's the primary grounding, but but to complement uh, ethnographic work uh, in, this, in in as many ways as you can so so methodologically just being being creative and not feeling constrained you know something I said earlier, just finding really great stories to tell um, and and really embracing the story quality of them and leaning into that um again it doesn't mean that you're not doing analysis it doesn't mean you're not theorizing you know you're not you're not merely telling a story but but fall fo- you know following those great stories and pulling at those threads um and kind of trusting. Trusting if there's a if you're if you think it's a great story, somebody else probably does too. And there's a reason that it's a great story. And and it's your job to to show why. I guess I was gonna I was gonna say one other thing, but I I've probably already already covered it. Um yeah it's a it's a it's a really great question. It's it's one of those questions where I'll we'll hang up and and then I'll be and, and I'll 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 think to myself, damn it, I really should have should have said this one thing. Um but I'm, it's escaping me at the moment. Um, I do, I do hope there is, is more work, uh, to be done here. I mean, in the conclusion, I talk about a few possible directions that people could, could take up. I, you know, there are other, other forms of scriptural materialization that, that go on. Um, and that people who know those traditions, uh, well can dive into, um, be it in Islam or, or Hinduism or Judaism, um, I also think thing beyond sort of strict, you know, theological traditions um, or religious traditions per se, and, and thinking about forms of, of sacredness. Uh, and that's where I, I go into a bit, this um, kind of, it's, I wouldn't, I don't even know if I'd call it an analysis, just sort of like a, an opening invitation to do more with um, uh, sites uh, that, you know, memorialize and, and teach about, uh, you know, in the United States, African-American history, Um, but we could say the same thing for, you know, immigrant groups or, um, you know, first nations, um, uh, and, and this is not unique to the United States, of course. Um, so, um, that is having, having those, you know, you know, minoritized stories to tell and those stories, um, that, um, haven't been given, you know, a fair shake and their fair due. So. Analytical frameworks that I use in the book, things like classification, circulation, design, things like choreography, um, you know, things like the power of nature. Um, that these aren't restricted to, you know, religion per se. That this is this is found whenever um, there is sort of sacralizing uh, uh, performances going on, and and I'd love to see see people do more with that.
1: Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for that. Is there anything that uh, we have missed out that you think is important in the book, actually, that you would like to spell out?
0: Um, You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not totally sure. I guess I have a question for you. If it's okay, I'll put you on the spot. I mean, I appreciate that you kind of walked through the book kind of closely. Um, uh, so uh, I think hopefully listeners will find that useful. Um, I certainly, you know, I wanted to talk about the composition of the book and, and we did that and, and I, I wanted to talk about some of the key categories in the book, um, you know, like choreography and like, like nature, um, the power of nature and, and sensory indexicality and those sorts of things. And so we got we got to cover those. Um, and hopefully, you know, it's a conversation that, that makes people want to go read the book and, and hopefully teach the book. And I'll say that um, the paperback will be out at some point um, um, in a year or so. Um, if folks are, are ho- hoping for that, um, to make it a more teaching friendly, um, price, which, you know, at the moment it's not really a teaching friendly price for asking students to, to purchase it. Um, but the paperback is, is, uh, slated to happen. Um, so no, I, I don't have anything else that I wanted to say. I don't think I, if I could ask you a question about the book, was there a particular chapter or a particular example, um, or a particular, dimension of the book that you found um useful or, or inspiring
1: yeah i see uh, what, one of the um aspect in this book and i, I think uh, which is not found very much in the let's say the uh, discourse on studies and religion is how you kind of um, you know Obviously, uh, your ethnographic work is uh, phenomenal in that sense, but also at the same time, how you kind of bring out the traits of the stories, actually. I think that's uh, that was something which was quite fascinating to me in the sense of how you not only give all of this uh, information and perspective, but then, you know, talk about all of these things in. in in terms of you know stories and and the stories that uh, people tell and and the stories that goes about the uh, places and all of those aspects. So I think that is something which for me personally out clean from from this book uh, as to how you put. You know uh, these things in the, in the in the perspective of the narration and, and the stories and all of those aspects. So I think that is uh, one aspect. But also at the same time, secondly, it's it's also about the formation of the book uh, itself in in terms of looking at it from uh, different angles and perspectives and, and all. I think that is where I would also kind of clean uh, will, will be and uh, I've also cleaned a lot from uh, the book in terms of how uh, it looks at the subject matter itself of uh, materializing and I think it gives me a perspective as to okay how how do me or personally how do I look at uh, the uh, you know field that I'm studying and how do I you know categorize and conceptualize these things in terms of narrating their perspective so I think that uh, also comes into handy in a sense so obviously it's a very overarching answer but then I think Without going so much into the specificity of it, I hope that suffices. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, that's really great. I, I appreciate hearing that, um, especially yeah, especially the piece about the the composition of the book because um, it did it did feel a bit yeah like a bit of a, an experiment or maybe even a risk. Um, you know, I, I have I have one more thing in response to your earlier question. Um, I guess that you know you helped me you helped me think about just now, um, which is. The importance, you know, of that, you know, back to that metaphor of kind of turning a phenomenon um, or moving around a phenomenon and trying to see it from as many different angles as possible. You know, we can never be totally exhaustive, of course, um, but we can do our damnedest to um, see as many different perspectives and angles as possible. Um, And that would be an encouragement that I would have for people as well to when you think you kind of have it figured to try coming at it from a new angle to talk to somebody else, to try to find that voice that hasn't been heard yet. Um, to, you know, you know, whether it's a, a person that you're able to actually go interview or, or an archival source that, um, you're able to seek out to try, you know, do your best to, um, unearth as many different perspectives and voices as possible. Um, because, um, I'll 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 speak generally here and, and probably regret it later but um nothing is nothing is is um speaking in a single voice you know every, everything has has its 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 multivocality to it I mean a place like Museum of the Bible you know draws that home for me you know because on the one hand it is a very evangelical place you know in the sense of US the US you know th- you know theopolitical tradition that is constantly, you know, seeking to make public gains and impact public life in the United States. um, And globally for that matter, Uh, lots of great scholarship on the global ambitions of of, uh, American evangelicals. Um, You know, and, and yeah, like exerting power in all kinds of ways. Um, So for sure, the museum is entangled in that world and, and, and exists because of that world. But that's not all it is. You know, there's other stories going on there. And for me, talking to the designers was a way of unearthing some of those stories, you know, that these were primarily secular design firms who had their own kinds of ambitions and agendas for what visitors would encounter in their exhibits. And, and, you know and then you get the visitors themselves who are who are quite diverse and and there for many reasons um, that's just one example but i i think it's a, a an emblematic one in the sense that um we really need to to do our best to not settle on a single narrative and a single story and a single perspective but to try to draw in as many uh, as possible so i would encourage folks to to always seek to do that
1: Yeah, thank you very much for that. Before closing off, uh, two queries. One is, is there any interesting project coming ahead of you? And is there anything that you're working on? And how do people reach out to you? Yeah.
0: Yeah, great. Uh, The second one's easier. Uh, Email is really good. Um, You can uh, find my email on my university page, which is at the the Department of Anthropology at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Um, But I have a personal page that's pretty easily locatable. Um, but I also have academia, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, any of those are, are good ways—good ways to, to um, find me and just send me a quick note. I always love hearing from folks, um, especially younger scholars um, who are, you know, either just starting out or in the midst of, of a first big project, um, and are looking looking for, you know, someone just to bounce ideas off of and to be in dialogue with. Um, so certainly you know, folks should not hesitate to reach out. Um, I'll I'll try to keep this short, but I do have a new project that's kind of getting off the ground that I'm quite excited about. Um, And it, you know, much like this project, you know, this project emerged out of the Ark Encounter uh, fieldwork and this new project, which is an ethnography of resellers. That is people who scavenge um, uh, secondhand uh, venues like uh, thrift stores and estate sales and flea markets uh, and auctions and find uh, uh, forms of Christian material culture and look to uh, resell it uh, online through sites like eBay and Instagram. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in in the world of resellers uh, in a nutshell and, um, And that really came out of this project. So part of the methodology for for materializing the Bible was to um, dive into uh, eBay and kind of use eBay as a way to acquire materials that I couldn't locate elsewhere and that weren't digitized uh, and available anywhere else. So these are things like old guidebooks for sites. And in fact, through eBay, I discovered a number of non extant materializing the Bible sites. And it's because they're um, old postcards and old guidebooks and old brochures. Um, you know, the sites were long gone and the founders had passed away. Um, uh, and there, in some cases there was really very little, uh, public record of them. Um, but some of their materials were still in circulation through eBay. Uh, and that's how I found out about them. And I, I'll give a, a, a shout out and a thank you to, um, some scholars that I've been working with, um, on what we're calling eBay method. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, shout out to, to Kate Dugan and uh, Monica Mercado and Susan Reynolds and, uh, uh Alyssa Maldonado Estrada, um, for being just, just amazing and inspiring colleagues. Um, so it was through interacting with eBay that I realized that there was this world of resellers out there. Um, and so, um, I'm particularly interested in questions of value, how value gets assigned to these objects uh, and and that means value in different forms so monetary value, historic value, nostalgic, emotional affective value, um, display of value and aesthetic aesthetic value um, And so just sort of that that the play of different kinds of valuation and how that's happening uh, in the encounter between, the reseller who goes out to an estate sale to find stuff to how they list it on eBay, to the buyers who seek it out. Um, and questions of ethics. Um, so what people are comfortable selling and what they're not comfortable selling and why, what they're not comfortable sourcing and why. Uh, and I have to say, I've met some really fascinating people so far. Um, uh, a gentleman named Mark, uh, who lives near, near to me. And I, I found him by going to an estate sale. Um, and, uh, Mark is an atheist, uh, who absolutely loves Christian stuff and he collects it and he has a house full of it, but he also uh, sells it, uh, online. Um, and I've learned a lot from Mark, uh, about reselling as a practice and also about Christian material culture. And so, um, you know, Mark's story is one of several that I've encountered, and they're just really, really, you know, intriguing people um, with, uh, you know, that I think think, uh, we as scholars have a lot to learn from.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for that. I'm sure the listeners and for people, there'll be so much to clean from this book, but also at the same time, people will, I believe that people will start critically engaging with the materials in this book, and this has been such a wonderful conversation. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. James, for being here in New Books Network for such an enriching conversation. Yeah.
0: Uh, Tia, thanks for having me, and thanks for great questions.